32nd Psalm is where we'll be in this morning in God's Word. If you're visiting with us today, this sermon series is called The Summer in Psalms. Um, and this summer, our, our teaching elder, Todd Cravens, is on sabbatical. Um, he's kind of about halfway through, so we've got about four or five weeks left of him being out. And myself and the other elders and some other men in our church are going to be continuing to lead us Sunday by Sunday through selected psalms. And so I pray that this series is an encouragement to you as we get into the psalms. It's uh, scripture that really is dialed in to our hearts as we walk in our relationship with the Lord. And so that, that's the series that we're in this morning. And I'm going to read to us Psalm 32 this morning. It's 11 verses. So you can follow along in your Bible or on your device, or it will also come up on the screen. Psalm 32. And as we read Psalm 32, um, you'll notice that at different points along the way, there's the word Selah. Uh, so this, this psalm was written as many psalms were to be used in the context of worship, liturgy. Uh, psalms are, are poems and they're songs. And so that word Selah that's there, it, it's, it's written there. Uh, to, meant to stop or pause. It, it means literally to stop or listen. And so as I read it and I come to a Selah, I will pause a little bit before we move on so we can stop and listen. So Psalm 32, written by David, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a beautiful expression of forgiveness, of complete forgiveness. Lord, as we study these words of David that were written to lead us into a place of worship, to lead us into a place of being in awe of you, on our knees before you, of your majesty and your greatness, and your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, I ask that as we go through it, that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct this time. I pray that your spirit would make your word come alive to us. I pray that your spirit would, would show us how to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction to our hearts where we need to change, where we need to come before you and surrender. Lord, I pray that your spirit would, would bring reminders of promises that incite joy the joy that comes from only the freedom that's found in Christ. So Lord, we give this time to you, and we pray that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as we study this psalm, as I said, you'll see the note in the beginning that it is written by, by David. Um, and, and David in this psalm is, is, is telling us how to rightly respond to sin in our lives. And as we see shortly, he, he's doing that from personal experience that he's journeyed through. Now, David, if you're not as familiar with him, David is a historical king of the nation of Israel. It's his, his life and his, his reign are documented both inside and outside the Bible. Uh, David was not a perfect king. Uh, he had his flaws. Uh, but it's written of him in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, that he was a man after God's own heart. And so in looking at the writings after man, a man that was after God's own heart, we have great things to learn about confession and forgiveness. David was picked by God himself to lead the people of Israel. He wasn't the first king. If you remember historically in the nation of Israel, uh, the heart of God was for God himself to be their king, but the, the people were crying out to the prophet Samuel at the time that they wanted one. And so God said, well, if, if they want a king, I will give them a king. And that king was not a faithful king. That was the first king who was King Saul. And, and King Saul, when you follow his history in scripture, you see that, that Saul's big struggle was, was that he did not acknowledge his sin before the Lord. Saul, Saul did not come before the Lord in his failures and in his weaknesses. As you read about Saul, he was always taking things in his own strength or kind of doing things in his own way. And when Samuel the prophet called him out on it, Saul always had his reasoning. He always had his justification. He never came before the Lord. He never came before Samuel and said, yes, I, I confess I was wrong in doing that. That was the major weakness in Saul. And so we see the Lord replace Saul with a man, David, a man after God's own heart. And as I said, David had his share of, of sin. And, and if you know David's history, and as we'll comment on today, it, it's, it's not light sin. It, it's some serious sin in his life. But unlike Saul, David brought his sin before the Lord. And that's what we see in this psalm. David responded to his sin differently. And so if I had to summarize what we learned from David in this psalm today... You'll see two points on this first slide. It's this from Psalm 32, is that we learn from David's writing about the incredible freedom that comes from acknowledging our sin before God. The incredible freedom that comes with acknowledging our sin before the Lord. And, and we see that kind of in these two different areas. We see it with respect to the beginning of our relationship with God, our salvation, and we see it with respect to the ongoing growth and maturity in our relationship with God. Or if, if you think about it in the theo theological terms, we see it in our justification and we see it in our sanctification. And so we're going to see that. And then the second point is, and if you kind of summarize this, is that we see the key to this freedom is found through a heart of genuine confession. The key to experiencing this freedom of salvation and experiencing the freedom of, of walking and growing in the Lord has to do with a heart of genuine confession. And, and that is such a clear thing we see in the life of David as you read not just this psalm, but all of his writings. And so that's kind of a summary of what this psalm is about. So let, let's begin with, with point number one. And as I go through the, the points, I have three points. The first point is probably the longest point because it, it, it shows you this big picture that even in the Old Testament, we see the fact that this heart of genuine confession is the key to experiencing this freedom in, in the Lord. And then the, the second point shows how the heart of genuine confession is really applied to our, our, our growth and our maturity or our sanctification moving forward. And then the last point shows through the rest of the psalm just some brief statements of encouragement and value in, in, in walking with the Lord and confessing our sin before Him and taking it seriously and seeking the Lord and confessing with him. So that, that's where we're going. So point number one, this is, this is regarding the beginning of our relationship with the Lord. And the point number one is this, is that true freedom is experiencing God's grace instead of the judgment we deserve. It's experiencing God's grace instead of the penalty, the judgment for our sin. I love how the songs that we sang in the beginning express that, that, that the Lord himself through his son Jesus Christ 
has set us free. We no longer pay the penalty of our sin. We no longer get what we deserve. And we see that expressed in this first section of Scripture in verses 1 and 2. But this is where you have to know kind of the backstory of David. Like I said, we're, we're, we're learning from David from his personal experience. And if you know the background of David, you, you can find it in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. I'll just paraphrase it for you. But David, really at kind of a, a point of climax in his kingdom as the king of Israel, um, he commits adultery. He sees another woman, Bathsheba. He's the king. He, he gives in to his lusts and his desires, and he goes to her, and he commits adultery with her. And then Bathsheba becomes pregnant. And if you know the story, you know that David, at this point, he decides to hide it. And he has to, to hide it, he has to take care of a problem. And that is Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so David, not only in committing adultery, now conspires with his general, and, and Uriah is out in the field in battle, and David sends a memo to his general and says, I need you to put Uriah with the forward unit, and you put him out there, and when the fighting intensifies, you pull the rest of the guys back. And so Uriah ends up dying. So through David's hand, Uriah is killed. This is the backstory of what David does. And he hides it for about a year. But the Lord will not let his children just hide their sin. After about a year, the Lord brings a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan the prophet comes to David, and everything is laid out. David is broken over his sin. And unlike Saul with his sin, David brings it before the Lord. He lays it out before the Lord. The bottom line is that when everything is finally exposed, David knew that he deserved death for his sin. He knew that he deserved, deserved death. But is that what these first two lines in the psalm describe what he got? This psalm and Psalm 51 are both written as expressions of David as he journeyed through this dark season of his life. Psalm 51 is the actual details of David's confession. We'll get to a little bit of that later on towards the end of the sermon. But if you go to Psalm 51, you see the pure heart of someone who is broken over their sin and laying it before the Lord. And that's what we likewise need to do. That's the example we need to follow. And so David lays it before the Lord. And Psalm 32 expresses in these first two verses the incredible grace of God. You'll see the first two verses again on the screen. And in the ESV version, it doesn't have it, but in the New American Standard Bible, it punctuates it with exclamation points. And I think that captures the heart of what you're really seeing there in David with the exclamatory statements as he's saying, because David is a man, put yourself in his shoes. He knows he deserves death. He knows that he is a man that has committed sin against God, serious sin, and the consequence is death. But that's not what God gives him. His expression is this in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is completely pardoned. Completely pardoned. Pardoned means the excusing of an offense without exacting a penalty. David here pays no penalty for the grievous sin that he commits. Now think about it. David is a man who had God's law. David was familiar with the Ten Commandments. David was familiar with the history of God's people. David was familiar with many other ways that God was asking his people to live. But much like every single one of us, David could not meet that standard. The words he uses in verses 1 and 2 express that. It, it expresses a description of our human character. It says that we transgress, that we sin, and we have iniquity. In his commentary, Warren Wearsby does a great job of explaining the slight differences between these terms. Because they're, they're synonymous, but there's some slight variations between them. So transgression means crossing the line. That means in our human character, 
we intentionally see what God's standard is. We know what his expectations are, yet there is something in us that looks at them and says, that's fine, but I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. That's the nature of our human heart. We transgress. We see the boundary. We see the sign posted, but yet we cross it anyway. That's the nature of our heart. We transgress. We cross over the line. The word sin, you're probably familiar with this. It means missing the mark. That God's expectation that is set for us to be holy as he is holy, that we can't hit that mark. It was a word that was used to describe archery for those who could not hit the bullseye, the mark of perfection. We cannot hit the mark that God sets for us. We transgress, we sin, and we're people of iniquity. Iniquity is an interesting word because it really describes the core of our inner character. Iniquity means twisted. It means twisted. So if you visually think about this, if you're comparing the character of God to our character, Think of it in it visualized two lines. The character of God is a perfect, straight, true line. He is perfect in all things. He is holy. Our character, on the other hand, if you put our line next to his line, is bent and warped and crooked. I was helping a lady in town with her yard recently, and um, she has a lot of roots and rocks in her yard, and, and her lawnmower was having difficulty working, and I'd start it, it would, it would stop, I'd start it, it would stop, we changed the spark plug, we messed with some different things, couldn't figure it out. She took it to a guy to take a look at it, and because of hitting some of the rocks and the stumps in the yard, the, the shaft of the blade was just bent. That's us, we're bent in our character and in our heart. So. That's who we are that we see. But yet, in these first two verses that David explains, that David speaks out, the bedrock principle in Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, from cover to cover, the principle that God does not give us what we deserve rings true. He does not give us deserve what we deserve for our sin. That is a huge glimpse of God's love and God's plan for us, that he gives us what we don't deserve. The Lord knows all of our twisted, mark-missing, line-crossing actions that are driven by our selfishness. We want to do what we want to do and not what he calls for us to do, to love him, to obey him, to follow him. But yet, in the midst of that, God's plan of salvation involves giving us what we don't deserve. So, as we look at that, these first two verses, we see a picture of God's grace to us. Our salvation is based on God's grace, a gift that we don't deserve. But amazingly, if you, if you continue to follow it, it also speaks about faith. And you're probably like, well, where do you see that? I don't see the word, word faith there. Well, we see it through another set of words, a set of three words that are used to describe what, God's, what God gives us. Look at it again. I underline the words. It says this in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Those three words point us to faith because of what they mean. If you, look up the word if you look up the word forgiven there that's used with transgression, it means to remove a burden. The burden of our guilt because of our transgression, the burden of our, our sin, the burden of our twistedness is removed. God takes it away. It's taken from us and taken elsewhere. It's removed. Our sin, how is our sin described? Our sin is described as covered. The word means to conceal, to clothe, or to hide. Now this is where the amazing picture of Old Testament and New Testament come together, pointing to our salvation by grace through faith. You know, David during his time knew these things through the sacrificial system that they had in place. 
And it's amazing if you look at these words, how they come out in the scriptures that describe this sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 through 22, describes the removing, the removing of our guilt. Look at that scripture. It says this, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat, here's the word, shall bear. It's the same word that's used for forgiveness in Psalm 32. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. What God gives us is not what we deserve, but he removes our sin from us. He removes it. He takes it away. Secondly, we see the covering. Again, in the Old Testament system, how we see this plan coming together, foreshadowing what's to come, we see a covering. The covering is through the second aspect of how sin was forgiven, was through the sacrifice of an animal, that the blood of the animal needed to pay the price for what we sin and do. Leviticus 17, verse 11, describes the same setting. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement. That's the same word covered that's used in Psalm 32. To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement that covers by the life. God's justice is satisfied as the blood of the sacrifice covers the altar for the sin of the people. And when those two things are accomplished, we see the third word come into play, that our iniquity is not counted. It's not counted to us. This aspect of the word in, of, of not counting, it's an accounting term. It's used to describe what's written down in a ledger for someone's account. So after our sin is removed and taken away, after that guilt is taken away, after we are, are covered and the sin is no longer seen by the blood, then our account is not credited with it. It's not credited with what we deserve. And the greater truth here is that David put his trust, his faith, in the God who took upon himself the means for satisfying that judgment of his sin. God took upon himself the means to do that, and David trusted in it. But for us today, as readers of the New Testament, in knowing what Jesus did on the cross, we look back and we see now the greater fulfillment. We see that what David experienced as a foreshadow of what was to come, he had his faith in what was to come. He had an incomplete version of it. We see the complete version in Jesus Christ. The freedom of experiencing God's grace instead of the judgment we deserve is through faith in Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross, he carried away our sin. We receive forgiveness through his death. And his blood that was shed for us covers us and makes us clean. We know that from the book of Isaiah who went on to write about the one who would to come, that David was putting his faith in. It says this in Isaiah 53, four through five, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that, bought, that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." Again, David didn't know the exact details of how this would be accomplished, but his faith was in the one to come, foretold in Scripture of how it would be accomplished. David could experience with confidence the freedom of full pardon for his sins by faith. And likewise for us today. And this is the amazing connection. I know this was a long way of building to something, but you see the grace and now you're going to see the New Testament reach out and grab this aspect of faith and connect the two together. So in the New Testament, 
We see in the book of Romans, we see the Apostle Paul writing about this grace that God gives us, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. And he's writing about it, and he's saying how it's accessed by faith. And in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8, he, st- he starts speaking of this. He begins way back with Abraham, that Abraham had faith in God's promise, and it was credited to him. It was put in his count by faith, righteousness. And he, he picks up in, in verse 5 through 8, it says this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, talking about Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And what does he quote? Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amazing connection, Old Testament to New Testament. The freedom that we have, the complete pardon, the freedom from the punishment of sin that we deserve is by grace through faith. And as New Testament believers, we see clearly that this only comes through personally placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. A familiar verse to many of you, Romans 10, 9 through 10, dialing it into confession. There's an aspect of confession that begins your relationship with the Lord, that justifies you before him, that forever takes away the penalty that you deserve. It's because Jesus Christ carried it away. It's because his blood covered it. And by faith in him, it's credited to you. But you have to confess him as your Lord. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. This is saving faith. This is a transaction that happens once, a confession of Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if this is true of your life, this is a true time to celebrate. You know, we're going to be doing a lot of celebrating this weekend of, of the freedoms that we have, that we are truly grateful for, that people have fought and died for. But there is a freedom that doesn't even come close to the freedoms that we have as a nation. And that's the freedom of the penalty of our sin being completely forgiven. And if you don't know that, or if you're insecure about that, or you're on the fence about that, I encourage you today to consider what it means to confess Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Confession of Christ begins our relationship with the Lord. Because of that confession, you're forever free. Because of that confession, you are a new creation. Because of Christ's righteousness seen in you, credited to your account, God no longer sees you as a sinner. Your position has changed. Yes, we still struggle with it, but that's not how he sees you. He sees you as completely forgiven because of the blood of his son that is credited to you, the righteousness of Christ. This confession allows you to be a child of God. This confession secures your place in eternity with God forever. This confession guarantees the deposit of the Holy Spirit to be with you every day on this earth until you die. That's the confession that brings this true freedom. Just in those first two verses. And as David continues, we see confession now shift from something that gives him the assurance, that gives him the beginning of the relationship, and he carries it into something that he says that Not only does it begin this relationship with God and give you the assurance that everything is forgiven, but you need to carry it with you. It needs to be something that is part of your walk with him, part of that growth and that maturity, not just the justification, but the sanctification process. And that's where we we continue in the rest of the psalm. 
The second point represents confession and forgiveness, dealing with our growth and our maturity in our relationship with the Lord. Let's read verses 3 through 5. David says this. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now you see in the first set of verses, in verses three through four, there's not much maturing and much growing going on in those verses. That's because when we hide our sin from the Lord, when we fail to confess our sin, we come under the chastisement of the Lord. We come under the discipline of the Lord. We are his children. The Lord wants us to walk in obedience and life with him. As his children, he will not turn us over to our sin. Those who don't know the Lord, who haven't done the first point, there's the warning there for you in Romans chapter 1 that the Lord will give you over to your sin. But he doesn't do that to his children. To his children, a loving father disciplines. A loving father draws them back through his disciplining hand. It may not be pleasant. There's pain involved in that because of our disobedience. But God draws us back to him. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 describes this. And it's actually the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is quoting the book of Proverbs in the, in the uh, Old Testament. So you can read it in two places, Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, or Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children of God? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. When you hide your sin from the Lord as a child of God, it's going to be painful. It's going to be, as David described, as being exhausted by the sun on a hot day, parched, your bones weary and weak. It could even roll into physical pain. The Lord is drawing you back through his discipline. And then you see the power of confession. Again, the words. It's amazing how the psalm, the words tell the story. What are the words that David uses? What does he do? He says that he acknowledges it. He does not cover it. This covering is not the same covering. This word cover here means to hide. He doesn't hide it. He acknowledges it. And he confesses it. So this leads to our second point. Is that walking in freedom requires daily genuine confession with the Lord. Walking in freedom requires daily, genuine confession with the Lord. Again, this is something in our, in, our, in our relationship with the Lord that I would say I haven't really focused in too much on to think about. Because as we grow with the Lord, we're taught many things, right? We're taught to read the scripture, to develop a devotional time. We're taught the aspect of prayer and coming to the Lord in prayer. And confession is always part of it, right? You know, we many times heard the, the ACTS model for prayer, adoration, confession. Um, a, yeah, there we go. Thanksgiving and supplication. So, but the confession part is one that, you know, if you're like me, you kind of like get to the C in confession and you just generalize it, right? You're like, Lord, yeah, I'm, please forgive me for all the times I get angry. I, I know I, get, I kind of have a short temper. Uh, forgive me for putting other things before you know how I use my time. And man, Lord, I really need help with the envy of my neighbor's really beautiful green lawn. So, and then I move on, right? I, I don't really dwell there in confession. And, and confession is something that is really as I've been reading and studying about it, it's a marker of our maturity in faith is the confessional life in our prayer. Thomas Watson says this about confession in our personal time. Thomas Watson says, a godly man's sincerity is seen in his confession. An unsound Christian will confess sin by wholesale. It's like what I just did. 
He will acknowledge he is a sinner in general, whereas David doth as it were, points with his finger to the sore and says, I have done this evil. Lord, this is what I've done. Go look at Psalm 51. David lays it out. David is specific. I need to remember this in my devotional time with the Lord. A godly man's sincerity is seen in his confession. Oh, that the Lord would draw us closer to ourselves and mature us out of an abundance of our confession time with him. That his spirit would, would identify the sin that we need daily, moment by moment, and that we would confess it to him. So this aspect of confession, it, it brings an aspect of two things for us. The aspect of confession, as we do it and pursue it, it shows that we are actively fighting sin in our life. The scripture calls us to fight sin. It calls us to kill sin. How are we going to fight something if we don't identify it? This aspect of growing in our confessional time with the Lord is a way to identify the sin in our life, to fight it. It's the first step of fighting sin. It's a battle against sin that we are fighting. And then secondly, it's a way of experiencing his cleansing, of experiencing his cleansing. Many of you are familiar with 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 9. It says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We experience his cleansing. I think Jesus made this aspect clear when he was with the disciples on the night before he was, on the night he was betrayed and they were in the upper room and there was no one there to wash the feet of everybody there. And so Jesus got up and he started, took a towel, he took a basin and he began washing the disciples' feet. And remember, Peter, Peter was like, mm, no, I don't think so, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. You're the Lord. And then Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any share with me. And then Peter responds, well, then the whole thing, like bathing time, shower. And Jesus says, no, no, you've already bathed. The one who has already bathed only needs his feet washed. It's that closeness, that personal foot washing time that we need with the Lord to be cleansed. So I was doing some reading and I was trying to think of an, an illustration to kind of show this value of, of confession. And I, and I was reading and, and, and I found this one. It's by uh, Christopher Love from 1683. So we're going way back. And, and he described it this way. So I'm going to put it in my own packaging. Picture yourself in your kitchen, right? Say you are, you're helping out making dinner and you're making the salad. So you've got, you've got your salad leaves there, you've got your bowl, and then you think, you know what, I'd love to go get a tomato and slice it up and put it on my salad. So you go to the fridge, you get your tomato, and you put it on the cutting board, and then you go to the drawer and you get your knife. And this has happened at my house many times. I go start cutting my tomato, start slicing the tomato, and I notice that after a while, instead of like nice slices, I have a little more kind of mush. You know, things are kind of like ripping apart and so my tomato is not looking very good. Well, what's wrong? What's wrong with my knife? It's not sharp, right? So the aspect of confession in our walk with the Lord is like the sharpening of a knife. You see, when you sharpen a knife, you're, you're allowing it to, to do its job as it was designed. But the process of sharpening a knife it, it takes some intentionality and it takes some time because you have to get a stone or you get, there's different gadgets these days in the kitchen, but either way, whichever one you use, you have to work that, that friction over the edge of the blade. You have to work it down the entire length of the blade. You have to flip the blade over and you have to work it on the other side. You have to inspect it and make sure you got everything. That's why all the knives in my drawer are, are not sharp, because it takes time and intentionality to do that. But that's what we need to do spiritually. If we don't take time to confess, confession is like the sharpening 
of us spiritually. And as we do that, we become more effective to do the job. If you sharpen the knife, you got great tomatoes, great sliced tomatoes. And you're less likely to hurt yourself too, right? When a knife isn't sharp and you're using it, you're more likely to cut yourself because you're doing stuff to try to get it to work and it's not working. So confession is like the sharpening of the blade of a knife. That's what we need to do with the Lord, to take the time to cultivate that. That's what I need to do in my walk with the Lord and get away from the generalizing my confession with him. So we, we see that. We need that. Because as we go out into the world, our soul, our, our, our ability to, to live for the Lord, it's worn down. It's dulled, just like that knife blade. It's dulled by our flesh. It's dulled by the culture. And it's dulled daily. I used to work in a restaurant. And man, every time you picked the knife up off of the little magnetic strip, you'd sharpen it. You'd sharpen it before every use. And that's like what confession should be for us. Not just in our morning devotional time, not just at night, but as the Lord brings it to mind to confess, to keep ourselves sharp. Well, as we wind down, we're kind of approaching the last part of the psalm. And, uh, and as we approach the last part of the psalm, there's just three aspects that I want to draw your attention to. I'm not going to go into them in as much detail because these first two points really bring home that aspect of understanding of, of confession and forgiveness first needed in our beginning, beginning our relationship with the Lord through receiving Christ as Savior and then in the ongoing process of our relationship with the Lord. And, I, and as David closes out, I feel like he's like, these, these are just some great reminders of why. Why do we need to continue in this? Why do we need to continue in daily confession? How does it benefit us? And I think we see these three benefits come out in, in what he describes in, in the last part of the psalm. So point three is this. Confessing sin does three things for us. Confessing sin keeps God close. We'll see that in verses six through seven. Confessing sin increases our sensitivity to the heart of the Lord. We'll see that in verse eight. And then confessing our sin restores joy. We'll see that in verse nine. So let me read to you verses six and seven. David says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great water surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him you are a hiding place for me you preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts of deliverance what we see here is david saying we live in a broken world the rush of great waters those are the trials that we face in life we never know when trials are going to come. Could be today. Could be a year from now. We don't know. God is sovereign over them. God is good. But we know we're going to face trials in this life. The rush of great waters that come. But those who trust in the Lord, who are close to him, those who confess and allow the Lord's closeness to be rich in their lives, those trials, those times of rushing great waters, they're not going to impact your soul. You may be going through something that affects you physically, emotionally. It may be both together. But as those rush of great waters come, your soul will be anchored to the Lord. You'll be close to Him. Call out to the Lord, He's available. Be consistent in your time of drawing close to him. That's what confession does. And when you're in your time of need, the Lord will be just what he describes there. He'll be your hiding place. He'll preserve you from trouble. He'll surround you with shouts of deliverance. Everything may be crashing down around you, but you'll be secure in him. I mean, think about it. During those times of trials, those are the times that we need to be the strongest in the Lord. We don't want to pick those times to begin drawing close to the Lord. We want to go into those trials being close to him. And that's what confession allows us to do. It allows the Lord to stay close so that he can be your anchor during those times.
Confessing our sin keeps God close. Next, confessing sin increases our sensitivity to the heart of the Lord. In verse 8, it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The Lord is the best teacher we can have in life. We come upon situations in our life each day where we need to make decisions. We need to make choices. We need to know the Lord's direction. Some of those things are small things. Some of those can be big things. But the way that we clearly hear from the Lord is not to have the barrier of unconfessed sin between us and the Lord. And that's what unconfessed sin, it's a barrier. It creates a distancing from the Lord. And when we're in time of need, we, we don't have access to his wisdom. We don't have the truth ready from his word because sin has created that barrier. You know, and think about it. Think about some of the major decisions that you make in life, whether it's career choices, family decisions, relationship decisions. If you make those decisions during a pattern of sin in your life, during a time where you're not close with the Lord, you can have consequences that will affect the rest of your life. You need to be close to the Lord. And the way to do that, to have his eye upon you and know his leading and be confident in that, his teaching, his counsel, his instruction, is to confess the sin in our life during our devotional time with him. And then finally, the last thing that confessing does is Confessing sin restores our joy. It restores our joy. Now, you may look at verse 9 and you're like, okay, how do you get that from that? Verse 9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. So my daughter, recently, we took her for some horseback riding lessons last fall. And the, the bit and the bridle, the bit goes in the mouth. It creates a pinching sensation, which isn't pleasant. And the bridle or is the, the reins on the neck. It's, it's, it's pain-induced control. It, it's, it's taking you back to what he was saying before in verse 4 and 5. This is the discipline of the Lord. And you know, he's making a comparison to this horse or this mule. And during that time, when, when a stubborn animal needs to be controlled like that, that isn't a pleasant time. It's like what David described, bones wasting away, groaning all day long, strength dried up. When we sin, we no longer have the joy of walking with our Father. In, in stubbornness, the things that we previously enjoyed in our walk with the Lord, gathering with God's people for worship, spending time studying the Word, serving in, in the capacities that He's gifted us, encouraging others, those things are are lost. The time is lost in being able to do those things. As long as we put up our stubbornness, those things are not available to us. Everything that is being done is to keep us close to the Lord. Like I said, the Lord will not allow his children to be given over to their sin, but he will discipline you to bring you back to himself. But when he does, the joy returns. And that's what David cries out. You look at the contrast between this time of bit and bridle. That's not fun. The bit and bridle time is painful. There's no joy there. But with confession, we see the longing for that joy and we see it return. Look at Psalm 51. Here's where we connect back with Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 7 through 12. David says this. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The, the Lord is faithful to restore that joy, but it won't be there 
during a time of hiding sin and not confessing before the Lord. So that brings us to the end. And I feel like the last two verses, David kind of throws out there a, where are you? How do we respond? What's your response? Verse 10 goes back to point one. Have you confessed Christ? Can you experience the true freedom of forgiveness of the penalty of your sin? Have you received Christ as your Savior? That's what we see in verse 10. There's two different places you can be. You can be among the wicked, or you could be among those who trust the Lord. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's the first decision you have to make. Have you experienced true freedom in Christ? Do you know Christ as your Savior, that his righteousness has been credited to you? If not, I encourage you to confess Christ as your Lord today. The second verse is for those who know him, for those who walk with him. It's the encouragement to rejoice, to know the incredible freedom that you've given that surpasses all other freedom that this world can offer with our sins being paid for through our Savior Jesus. It says this to us. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's how God sees us. He sees us as righteous and upright in heart. And as we walk with him, as we confess our sins with him, we experience that joy daily. So I encourage you to think about where you are as we respond to this. And today happens to be the first Sunday of the month. And so we're going to partake of communion. But I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have um, a reading. And then we're going to partake in communion. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful expression of David. Lord, on this Independence Day weekend, celebrating our freedoms as a nation, Father, let it sink deep into our hearts what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to guide these moments of reflecting on confession. Where do we stand before you with respect to the penalty of our sin? Where do we stand before you in our walk in maturity? Lord, thank you for the power of confession that gives us such beautiful forgiveness a gift that we don't deserve, that we receive by trusting you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.